The New Age Christianity Podcast is brought to you by... Hello, New Age Christian family. This is Austin Fletcher. As always, you are listening to the New Age Christian Podcast, and this is episode number 14. So today I want to talk to you about Jesus, and uh, specifically, I want to talk to you about the temptations that he went through in the wilderness. Uh, A while ago, maybe a few years ago now, I personally went through a season where this particular story in Jesus's life was so incredibly meaningful to me because I began to see the parallels of the specific things and the questions that he was asking himself, hint, hint, in the wilderness, when he was speaking with the devil, when he was questioning all of the things that he knew of himself. And it's the same stuff that we all face. And at the end, you'll see it's the same stuff that everyone in humanity faces. And it's the only real temptations that we've ever had in our life. So let's get going. here we are guys i hope you really like that intro music by the way (laughs) oh man when my wife and i picked it out uh at the very beginning there was so many different options and for me this one uh you know obviously we picked it for a reason but it has become everything i hoped it would be i can't hear that without immediately thinking of new age christianity and the podcast and i i enjoy the music so hopefully you do as well Oh man, so today we're going to talk about Jesus and the temptations. And before I really get into it, I want to explain a bit of why. One, um, I was doing an interview with Christopher Teasdale. It's one you'll probably hear in a couple months uh, as I'm trying to build out a backlog of podcast episodes. And it'll be, it was the last one I did with him. And in there, we talked about this story, the temptations of Jesus. And I realized, you know, I should do an episode on it because it is so vitally important in the journey of anybody who wants to become a manifested son of God. Jesus, while he was clearly special and clearly the first begotten, um, when he was on the earth, by the way, it says he's the only begotten. But when you get to the book of Revelation, he is the first begotten because becomes the first of many which is a whole nother theological point. Nonetheless, he was special, clearly. He was the son of God, clearly. But so are you. And if you want to know the journey, the temptation, the trial uh, that awaits you on your attempt or on your, uh, man, on your journey of becoming a son of God, then studying his temptation and studying some of the things that he went through, the the few examples we have where he wasn't just this all-knowing magical unicorn of a person, but where he had some vulnerabilities and he had some questions and he had some challenges. If you study those moments in his life, you will find buried treasure that can absolutely change your entire perspective on being. And I believe it will minister to you 
at the at the deepest core of who you are. And so there was a few years ago where I was trying and and starting to delve into what does it mean to be a manifested son of God. And these stories, these temptations began to become more and more highlighted by the Holy Spirit. I I saw the on the surface level, I mean, I've heard plenty of sermons on it. I've certainly studied them before, but as with so many things in scripture, when you begin to when you become a different person in theory, right? You're growing, you're changing, and you're not the same person you are t- you were yesterday. You're not the same, certainly not the same person you were a year ago. And I would add to that, hopefully you're not the same person you were a year ago. So when you become a different person and you go read the same verses again, the chances that you'll find a deeper meaning and a more impactful change in those verses is gets better and better and better. Clearly, there's a point at which you have layers and layers and layers of value from the same verses. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, that's just this unending thing. But I am saying, if you've read the Bible and you have studied the Bible and then you've changed, go read it again. And I promise you, you'll find things you've never seen. And in this case, the story of Jesus and his temptations, I think I've revisited them at least four times and found deeper layers of meaning each time. And so I kind of want to do what I can to share with you some of the nuggets, some of the insights that have greatly affected my outlook on life and my outlook on myself, not to mention my outlook on Satan or temptation or even the types and shadows of scripture. So I could go any one of a thousand directions in this particular episode, and I'm going to do my best to kind of just skim over the top of it and give you some nuggets, let you do some of your own thinking It's becoming more and more of a thing for me to not be just a source of answers, but to really be a source of questions that if you need the answers, I absolutely believe in answers. I don't believe in the philosophical trap of only asking questions and not having answers. But nonetheless, the questions are where the real sign of maturity are. You know, it's when Jesus is at the temple and they were astonished at his questions. Answers, anybody can learn answers. We've all been to school. We've all been to high school and we learned, we learned the right answers. And how much do you really remember? You don't remember much because it's not the answers that prove who you are. It's the questions. And so if you want to become a more mature individual, then mature the questions that you're asking which is a beautiful yet accidental segue into exactly what was going on with Jesus, right? He gets asked three questions by Satan. And I'm not going to give it away right away, but if you've listened to the episode on Satan and what I believe about Satan, you realize, wait a minute, he was being asked questions by Satan. And Satan is the opponent. Satan is the thing that absolutely its entire purpose is to be a blacksmith to sharpen us and to form us into who we need to be. Anyway, I digress. So first I want to start out with a few technical observations of the story of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness. Um, One of them, you know, if you didn't know this, that only two of the biblical uh, gospels explain or uh, expound on what, what happened in the wilderness. 
Matthew and Luke both talk about the three temptations. Uh, Mark mentions that he went to the wilderness, but that's it. He says he went to the wilderness and he came back. And then John doesn't mention the wilderness at all, which is interesting. But even more interesting is if you remember my episode on the Bible and the inerrancy of the Bible, this is one of those examples where you, when you compare the two gospel accounts, the temptation of Jesus and the three questions that the devil asks him are actually listed in different orders. So when you, this is just one of those simple, on the surface level, let me just say again, if you think the Bible doesn't have mistakes then there's a way in which that has to be true. And if it's and if you think it's mistake-free on the surface level, well, then you're wrong because there's plenty of examples of this where the gospel accounts have, a different, have different details. And so if the Holy Spirit wrote this Bible and yet the order is, in, is different in Matthew and in Luke, then either it has mistakes and it's, you know, just written by men and it's not worth, you know, dying for or anything like that, or the mistakes are there for a reason. If you've listened to that episode on my beliefs, I believe the mistakes are there for a reason. Regardless, there is a difference in the order, and therefore there is there is a case when you when you come across Christians or non-Christians who say the but the Bible's a, a just a load of crap and it's not written by God and everything like that because they view these discrepancies as proof of human error. I view these discrepancies as proof of spiritual truth and spiritual treasure. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, elaborating, but I would say if you, when you find this, right, when you find discrepancies between the Gospels, there's one massive filter I want to give you, and that is there are four Gospels that I believe uh, typologically or allegorically speak to the four faces of the four living creatures uh, around the throne, lion, ox, eagle, and man. If you get into that particular subculture of Christianity where they look at the spiritual uh, allegory, then it's actually not that uncommon to view the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as being written through the different lenses of the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. Or another way to put it would be the king, the burden bearer, the spiritual individual, and the, the man. And so uh, it's often believed that Luke is the version where you view Jesus as a man. Uh, John is the one where you view him as a very spiritual individual, so the eagle, um, the eagle that flows on the air like the spirit. Uh, Mark uh, being the version that views him as the ox or the burden bearer uh, with, with its emphasis on the passion of Christ and his death and resurrection. And then Matthew, uh, his emphasis on the kingdom and Jesus's miracles and stuff. Uh, a lot of people believe Matthew is about the king or the lion. So when you begin to study the Gospels and you see the discrepancies between them, one of the ways in which you can then filter and go, okay, so why is this different? Why is the story different? If it's not man's mistake and it's not a, you know, <laughs> it's not proof of the lack of the Holy Spirit's perfection and it's actually proof of buried treasure, then one of the main filters I immediately go to with the four Gospels is which Gospel is it in? what and which gospel it represents the, the different 
faces of God, essentially. The king, the burden bearer, the man, or the spiritual powerhouse. And if you just go read those Gospels, you'll see, oh my gosh, John really does emphasize the spirituality. John really does emphasize, I mean, he takes so much more time in the upper room where Jesus is talking about being one with the Father and us one together. Like, oh wow, that's really cool. And Luke is all about Jesus. You know, he's the doctor who who went and did his research and, and came out with the gospel years later and wants to emphasize Jesus's humanity. And so when you put those lenses on, I believe it's an, it's a, one of the major lenses that when you find discrepancies in the gospels that you can find helpful. So that's just a technical observation. I, I can't really, uh, I can't talk about the Gospels and the discrepancies without at least handing that out to you. I hope it helps for future reference or for past clarity um, if you've done studies before and not known what to do. But yeah, their orders are different in the two Gospels. Matthew and Luke switch the final two temptations. I tend to believe if you're going to have to nail one down, I believe Matthew is the correct order simply by the fact that the last temptation Jesus tells Satan to go away, and then Satan goes away. So it seems to be if you wanted to nail one down, but to be honest, guys, I don't really concern myself with the technical accuracy of the Bible because that that argument breaks down really quickly over and over again. So if you want to be technical, sure, I think Matthew's probably the right order, but I don't tend to care. The point is in the story, and the accounts are still cover the same sequence of events. So, and another technical thing here is in the life of Jesus, one of the things that uh, this isn't actually about the temptation, but this, this is right in the same timing or it's the beginning of Jesus's ministry. I want to hand you guys some freedom here for a second, because I remember growing up in church and I remember being encouraged slash manipulated to try to witness to people. I remember being manipulated slash encouraged to try to give my life to Jesus and dedicate everything to him and all this stuff. And one of the ways that people did this and youth pastors did this and senior pastors did this was, you know, what was it when you, you need to live such a life like Jesus did that this random man, when he walked up and asked these fishermen to follow him, they immediately dropped their nets and gave everything to follow Jesus. What, what was so mystical and powerful and beautiful about Jesus that made complete strangers leave everything behind and follow Jesus? And as I said, this doesn't have much to do with the temptations, but it's right in the same timing, the temptation and everything like that. And I wanted to draw out one, one other technical thing that you may not realize. That line of crap is is completely inaccurate and anybody who's ever given you this speech that you know the disciples were so faithful they just followed Jesus without even knowing anything no that is, there are so many cultural things that that they don't take into account uh, first and foremost in the Hebrew culture if a rabbi a known rabbi came and asked you to follow them and be a student uh, heck yes that was a major honor, and there was absolutely, um, especially if you're a fisherman, if you understand the culture, only the special students got to move on to more and more higher expectations in their religious structure. Paul would have been one of them. For him to be under Gamaliel and to become a lawyer and everything, you had to be 
Now, remember, Paul was a lawyer in a theocracy, meaning in order to be a lawyer, you had to know the scriptures. It, that, that was their law book. Okay, so for Paul to be a lawyer, he was a big deal. He was one of the special students. If you were a fisherman, that is all the proof you need that you got the bare minimum and then you did not pass muster. Like you had to, okay, you don't get to graduate into the master's program. You get to go back and be a fisherman. So if a rabbi comes and asks you to follow follow him and you're a fisherman, there's so many uh, norms being broken there that it's a big deal. So that's one thing culturally. Second, and this is the most annoying one, is you don't even have to know Jewish context. All you got to do is actually read the Gospels as a singular story, and you realize, oh my gosh, Jesus had already, by the time Jesus asked the first disciple to officially follow him, one, they've already eaten at his house, they've already seen him do miracle at the wedding of Cana, they've already seen him drive out the the uh, money changers in the temple the first time. He did that twice. Um, one and then another time he did much later in his ministry. They've already he's already had the conversation with Nicodemus, it, you know, in John chapter three. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That conversation's already happened. Uh, and he's already healed Simon Peter's mother, right? He's already cast out demons uh, multiple times, and he's he's already stood up in the temple and reading the book of Isaiah, saying that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus. By the time by the time he asked Peter, oh, and he's already been in Peter's boat preaching from the from the land. Like so, by the time he goes to Peter and Andrew and says, "Hey guys, leave your nets and follow me," they have already seen him do crap tons of Messiah stuff. Okay, so so let that condemnation just fall away. This lie that oh, you need to be as as trusting and faithful as disciples, and you need to follow Jesus, even though you've ne- he's never proven himself to you. That is bullshit. I'm sorry. And for those of you who ever were ministers or any of that, if you ever preached that, you know, shame on you. <laughs> and I'm, sp- I'm, taking, I'm speaking to myself right now, because I'm pretty sure I probably did that to my youth group too. I probably used the whole, follow Jesus and just trust him and now, look, the disciples had already seen that this guy, this this man named Jesus, could walk the walk and talk the talk, and that he was legit. And John the Baptist had already said, this is the Messiah. And oh, and if you want to know, and if you want to go study this yourself, the marker, the timeline marker that you need to use when you're looking at the different gospels about what had happened, was the marker I use to know that Jesus had already done all these things before he ever calls Andrew is when did John the Baptist go to prison? And you'll remember like John the Baptist, the the the, the famous statement, he must increase and I must de- decrease. Like because they found out that Jesus' Jesus and his disciples were baptizing more people than John. Well, John hadn't been in prison yet. And yet, here's the thing, Jesus had quote-unquote disciples, yet it wasn't the official call of a disciple, if you go to Mark, where the first disciples were officially called, it was after John had been put in prison. So even Simon and Andrew and those guys, they had been hanging around Jesus and learning from Jesus and participating in what Jesus was doing at the wedding in Cana, at baptizing in the Jordan, before they officially left everything behind and followed Jesus. All right, so if you become a Christian 
and you love Jesus and you love his stories and everything like that, and you've been manipulated into thinking, well, unless you become a missionary, you're not really following Jesus. Unless you give everything, you're not really following Jesus. Just let let this be known that the apostles, long before they were full-time disciples, they were engaged in the life of Jesus and appreciating and learning and, and participating in what Jesus was doing, and yet they were still fishermen. They were still doing the things that they were doing. So I'm now 20 minutes into this episode. I still haven't even gotten to the temptations. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that one kind of gets, that one gets my blood boiling. Just this, the manipulation of, you know, if you really love Jesus, you're going to give him everything like the disciples. Guys, that's, that's not how, at all how it happened. So let's actually get to the temptations. So Jesus, you know the story. If you don't know the story, it's in Matthew and and Luke, yes. He gets baptized by John. Holy Spirit descends and lands on Jesus in the form of a dove. There's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Okay. And then according to Mark, and this is the only reference it has, says immediately the Holy Spirit compelled him to go into the wilderness to be tempted for three days. So there's a few things here. One, the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. Have you ever slowed that thought down and went, wait a minute, the Holy Spirit led him into temptation? Long, dramatic pause so that the point will be driven home. It's no different than the fact, if you listen to the Satan episode, and there's so much, so many layers to this, it's no different than the fact that the serpent was in the garden. Who put the serpent there? So if you remember, and, and just let this play into, again, stack on top of the things that you've already heard, in that the idea that this all-powerful fallen angel has risen up and caused X, Y, and Z to happen. Guys, the devil, Satan, temptation, all of that. You cannot convince me anymore that that idea, that framework of this opponent of God and this fallen angel thing, you cannot convince me that it's even remotely legit anymore. Does darkness exist? Yes. Do demons exist? Yes. But it's not in the created warlike, war language fashion that we've been given. And I think this is yet another proof when it says the Holy Spirit leading Jesus into the, temp- into the wilderness to be tempted. I'm, I'm not going to unpack that anymore other than to just let that challenge you. If you think, you know, that the temptation is 100% this thing that the devil does. Guys, this also makes Jesus's prayer really interesting when, it's, when in his, the, the prayer to lead us not into temptation. That's, I'm just going to let that one sit there. Meditate on that, that the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into temptation, yet his prayer is lead us not into temptation. And if you've heard the theology that God will never tempt you, 
I'm just going to give you those three ideas and let those sit. And uh, maybe we'll do a class on it because it is, that's the kind of dissonance in scripture that I look at and go, yes, Holy Spirit, thank you for challenging me. Thank you for letting me uh, dig deep into this stuff. So Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Okay. So (laughs) just on the surface, and this is one of the first layers that I, I was like, wait a minute. So Jesus goes into the, into the wilderness and like this funny looking dude with red tights, a pointed tail and a pitchfork and a forked tongue shows up and starts talking to him after 40 days of fasting. That doesn't really seem all that difficult. Like if you're Jesus and you've just, just been told that you're the son of God and the devil shows up in physical form in front of you to tempt you, it's kind of like, oh, well, I, I know who you are. That, that's not very tempting at all. True temptation doesn't come from the outside. Sin, unrighteousness, unbelief, none of those things come from the outside. They all come from within. Even on the most basic level, if you consider, oh, I, you know, don't tempt me with chocolate. Really? Because the real desire isn't coming from the person who's offering you a candy bar. The real desire is coming from your experience of how much you like or don't like chocolate. And the proof is, those of you who don't like chocolate, the idea of chocolate isn't tempting at all. So I can give you, I can hold out in front of you an action or something that I can offer you something that for like, (laughs) I don't know, use an example, you know, here, here's some seafood. I don't know. That's a really bad example. Sugar, you know, here's something sugary and sweet and you, and it's a particular form, i.e. chocolate that you love or i.e. chocolate that you don't love. Depending on what's going on inside of you, that's what determines whether or not it's a temptation or not, not whether or not I offered it to you. So true temptation, number one, it does not come from the devil or anyone else. True temptation, the source of it is from within. And when I realized that, I went, oh my gosh, Jesus being driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness enters into a three-phase question, temptation of himself, and true temptation comes from within. What was it that Jesus was wanting, wishing he had that these temptations were really touching on? It's all found in the question. And the question, if you remember the very first one, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And I thought about that. I I went into the, the typologies of bread and stone. And by the way, there's a lot in there, right? If you just research stone and bread in the Bible, you will find loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of scriptures. I'm going to boil it down for you. You're welcome. <laughs> That the stone is a representation of law, right? And that the bread is representation of the word or the rhema of God. So um, turn this law into freedom, essentially. Um, That's on the typological level. There's some things to be found there. I'll let let the Holy Spirit do what he wants with that in you. But for me, it was actually before that, 
if you are the son of God. Now, remember what had just happened 40 days earlier before all of his uh, fasting. He gets baptized by John. The Holy Spirit comes down, sits on his shoulder, we think. <laughs> Sometimes I think it'd be funny if it just sat on his head. Like <laughs> but, you know, all the pictures show it on his shoulder or like still descending. But, you know, so the, the dove sits on his head and, the, and then you hear this voice from, the, from heaven that says, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So, God has just said, you are my son. And the next thing we hear is, well, if you're the son. Does that sound eerily familiar to what was going on in the garden with Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Because that's where the temptation is. Did God really say? The father just said, you're my, you're, this is my son. And the very next question we have is, well, if I'm the son, and I'm going to fill in the blank. If you're the son of God, prove it. Prove it. And why is that important? Because the real thing that pleases God is faith. It's believing him, right? And Jesus's answer is that, that man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus is essentially saying, I don't need to prove this. I don't need to prove that I'm the son of God. The, the, the question itself is, it's kind of that there is no spoon. Like, you want me to bend this spoon that, you, that doesn't exist. I don't have to prove anything because I am the son of God. My father just said I'm the son of God. And if you want me to prove it by doing something miraculous or doing something powerful, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And to that end, guys, I want to encourage you, proving your sonship, proving your deity as a child of God through your actions is a temptation. Because in the end, it is not about proving it to God. It's about proving it to yourself. And as long as you have to prove it to yourself, you will find your inability to simply rest in believing it. And when the proofs stop, so does your belief. But if you can believe that you're a child of God, whether or not you've done anything great, whether or not you've ever healed anybody, whether or not you've ever raised somebody from the dead, if you can just simply believe that you are a child of God and that you are, that he is pleased in you and with you and that the Holy Spirit is rested in you and you don't have to turn stone into bread, well done. You've passed the first temptation. If you are the son of God, well, guess what, devil? The father just told me I was, and that's all I need. I only need his word. I don't need to prove anything. Now, the next one, and I'm, I'm just going to go with Matthew's order for now. I've, I'm not going to explain what I believe the difference between the two orders is. I've already kind of given you some nuggets to meditate on. Uh, the next one with Matthew's order is, okay, if you are the son of God. So he takes him up to the, to the, high, to the heights of the temple. And if you don't know, the Jewish temple was on the uh, mountain, the main mountain in Israel. Uh, we don't really have a whole lot of explanation of how that would have worked, but I, I like some of the you know movie interpretations of that scene. It's almost like this kind of in the spirit experience. But point being is takes him to a high place and says, if you're the son of God, then the Bible says, right? So now that now Satan's throwing in, 
oh, but actually there's another point here where scripturally, I honestly, yes, if I'm the son of God, but also the Bible says this. So Jesus's previous answer about living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, this temptation now brings in that. So, (laughs) oh my gosh, if you've lived this, this becomes intimately personal. And uh, I'll do my best to try to explain it. But Jesus is on the high high place, and it is, if you're the Son of God, the Bible says that he will not let your foot uh, cast against a stone. Or st- I can't remember. The, the, it's an interesting passage, and I'm not—I probably could read it, so maybe I should here. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple— And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Now, if the devil is this being outside of him, saying, Hey, Jesus, that's my snake snake noise, Uh, you know, whatever. (laughs) Hey, Jesus. Hiss. If you want to quote scripture, that's great. I'm going to quote it back at you. That's, that's interesting, but nonetheless, you still have this external being and it's still not that big of a temptation, but put yourself into the mind of Jesus where Satan really lives. It was in our minds where temptation really comes from, which is from within. And you get a whole different scenario where Jesus has said, I don't, in in temptation number one, I don't need to prove that I'm a son of God because I live by what the Father has told me and I live by what the Father has said. Part two, I now am tempted to prove that I'm a son of God because some of the things that the Father has told me is that X, Y, and Z is possible. And yet other verses say that you shouldn't test God and everything like that. Can you see if you're Jesus and you put yourself in the mind of Jesus, can you see here that what's really going on is he's having, I believe, a conversation with himself, and it's all still about proving whether or not he's the Son of God. And he's now using scriptures and he's using other truths, because that's what we do, guys. We we know that we should be able to raise the dead, but we also know that, you know, sell eternal life, and we, we know... I. I I face these things all the time in teaching people in New Age Christianity because I teach them one truth and they embrace it and they go, yeah, we should be healthy and, and vibrant and da, 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 da. And then in the next breath, you look at the value of darkness and you look at the va- and the reality of different spiritual truths that seem to contradict the other one that you really want to embrace. And maybe you're listening to this and you recognize like, oh my gosh, that happens to me all the time. I I know we shouldn't be sick, but I also know that sickness has plays a role. And I, and I know we should, you know, fellowship with other people, but I also know that there's value to being in the wilderness. It's, guys, spiritual truth is, is never static and one-to-one. There is always layers and variations and custom-built application. And this is Jesus experiencing that same exact thing. He's going, well, God already said I'm the son, and and so I'm going to believe it. But at the same time, the Bible says that this isn't. But at the same time, God has also said, don't, don't do this. And so, and Jesus is weighing these things out. 
using the truth of the word of God, the scriptures specifically, but also the word of God when he was at the Jordan being baptized. So I would boil it down. And if you notice, this one again starts with, if you are the son of God. And so now you have two temptations that begin with the same question, if you are the son of God. And again, I'm going to translate it. If you are the son of God, prove it. Number one was prove it to yourself by performing a miracle, by doing something godlike. Prove it to yourself. And number two, if you notice, Satan brings in the dynamic of the angels and other entities. The I believe number two is essentially, if you're the son of God, prove it to other people. So one is prove it to yourself. And two is prove it to other people. You might believe it. That's great. But now you need to prove it to other people. Also a temptation. Also something very, very real and very, very nuanced in the experience of every son. For me, that particular one was significantly more difficult than the first one. Because I've been telling people for years that we are gods and, the, and we are the body of God. Proving it to myself was relatively easy. One, I have done multiple miracles and everything like that. So, But even then, before I did, I, I believed it because I understood the word. But it was all of the people challenging me outside of me saying, dude, you're freaking crazy. You can't do this. You can't do that. And I'm wanting to prove it to them. I want my finances to prove to them that I'm prosperous. I want my uh, spiritual power to prove to them that I'm pro- powerful and, and so on and so forth. I want my teaching and my understanding of the Bible to prove to them that I know the word of God. I mean, and proving my sonship to other people, it took me a few years to figure out, oh, this is the game I'm playing. And yeah, if that's where you're at, I'd encourage you to to meditate and, and draw close to Jesus specifically and say, dude, how did you, how do you get past this? Because it's really difficult to not step into the prove it game. Now, remember where these temptations are coming from. These are coming from within Jesus. These are coming from the thing inside of him that wants to have the world see him this way. And I believe this leads into the third temptation, which is when Satan says, you see all this entire world? Look around. I own it. And if you bow to me now, I'll give it to you. Now think about the reason that Jesus came. His purpose. His purpose was to save the world, to essentially take back dominion of the world from Satan. And essentially, Satan is is right in this moment is saying, if you bow to me right now, I will give you the very thing that you came to get. Now, as a son of God, whose reason for being here is to take over the world, and I believe at this point he's seen enough in the scriptures to know that crucifixion and death and all of that is in his future. Now you're talking about one heck of a temptation to say, if I can just give into this serpent, which I believe is separation, I could take everything else I know and I could take over the world right now. And yet, my purpose is to follow the Father and that all I would do is follow the Father. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Not serve myself, not serve my own plan. I know I'm here to take over the world. 
I could do this right now by myself. Instead, he says, nope, yeah, I'm here to take over the world, Satan. That's why it's a temptation, because it's inside of Jesus. He knows that that's why he's here. And yet, he says, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to do it through the Father's way. And so that third temptation isn't about identity, and it's not about proving it to yourself or proving to other people. Once you know your identity, the real temptation is trying to walk in your purpose ahead of its time and trying to become a fully manifested son of God in the earth because you know I'm here for X, Y, and Z, and I need to do this. And I think so many, so many well-meaning Christians find their desires within them and they realize I'm here to do X, Y, and Z. And then they go out and start doing it. And they do it through the lie of separation and they bow down to the idea that God is separate from them. And they go out and they do their work and they end up essentially giving into this third temptation of, well, if I start doing it now, I'll, I'll get it. But here's the thing. You're getting it apart from being one with God. And Jesus knew that being one with God and serving the Father's household was more important than the mission itself. Now, this is very real for me because I've held these truths, the things that I speak for years. Many, many of them I've held for years and I'm always learning and there's there's always little nuggets that are coming out that I'm very fresh for me. But nonetheless, the temptation is to has been for years to start my ministry, to write my books and blah, 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 blah. And never once did I feel peace from the Father, from the Spirit to do it. And even now, the Spirit is teaching me on a whole new level what it means to only do what I see the Father doing. Because if I find my purpose and I begin to go pursue it outside of his timing, outside of his way, outside then what I'm essentially doing is I am doing these great, amazing things through the lie of separation. If you meditate on that, I'm giving you a lot to meditate on, but if you meditate on this, and I just feel like so many of you are in different places, and so this podcast is is hitting different things because we're all going through this temptation journey. And that is my final point. All temptation for every human through all time really comes down to one of two things. You can see it in the Garden of Eden. You can see it in the wilderness with Jesus. You can also see it in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus. Every temptation you ever faced, one, you need to remember, they come from within. You can blame other things for tempting you. It's, it's all from within. It's all you tempting you because of the things you want, which by the way, is a little hint towards lead us not into temptation, but I digress. It's you tempting you in one of two ways. The first way is your identity as a God, as a child of God, as the body of God, as an individual manifestation of God. Your identity is the first way and the, and really the, the, the main way that all of humanity has been tempted and failed which is, well, if you are, prove it to yourself, and then if you are, prove it to others, right? But it's, that it's still centered on if you are. It's still centered on the doubt that that's who you are. So your identity is the number one way 
that you get tempted? And how do you, quote unquote, manifest those temptations? It's all different forms of trying to prove it, right? It's all different forms of trying to prove who you are or who you aren't, which is where all sin comes from, is trying to prove different things. And really it comes from a lack of belief in our true identity when God said we were like him, when God said we were made in his image and likeness, we don't believe it. And so everything we do, all of the things we create, all of the destruction we create, everything, it's all out of that central thing. And then the other one, if you can get into your identity, and I believe a lot of people listening to this podcast and the world itself is beginning to understand that we are gods, that we are God in the flesh and we are creators. And it's beautiful. But the, the one right behind that, the other temptation, really simply comes down to, if you know you're a God, the second one is why you're specifically here and the temptations that surround that. So the, the, the corporate identity of your, of your makeup and then the individual identity of your reason for being is the other temptation, which I would then, you know, you see again, you see in the Garden of Eden, you see in the wilderness with Jesus, you see in Gethsemane if you unpack them. So all temptation comes down to identity and purpose. Who are you and why are you here? Right? I was listening to Rob Bell's podcast recently and he mentioned a old, an old uh, Jewish priest. Uh, I think it was in the time just after Jesus. And this priest was walking down the road one day and he would walk the same path home every day. And this particular day, it was really, really foggy. And he missed the turn to his house and he kept walking and he ended up in front of the Roman, uh, the Roman barracks in the fog. And there was a man up on the wall, a Roman soldier on the wall that yells down, who are you and why are you here? And this rabbi says, what do they pay you? And the man says, what are you talking about? Just tell, who are you and why are you here? He says, what do they pay you? He says, I get 10 denarius a week. And he says, come, come to my house every morning and ask me that question and I'll pay you double that. Who are you and why are you here? Those two questions are the center of everything that tempts us. Those two questions are the center of everything that tempted Jesus. And if you meditate on his journey and you meditate on this process for him, I believe you will find so many encouraging insights from the Holy Spirit to realize I don't need to prove who I am to myself or to anyone else. And if I figure out why I'm here, what I really, really need to do is I need to submit it to a higher purpose, the Father's house. That is my, when I say the Father's house, what I mean is the universe. I mean the entire world, not just my little world. I mean the cultural context from 6,000 years ago to 6,000 years from now. The Father's house is a much bigger concept. And when you begin to realize and see yourself as playing a part in that picture, and not just I'm a mom of three kids and, and, and I'm important in their life. Yes, that's beautiful. But how about you and those three kids in, in the context of the universe, right? 
So when you submit your calling, your purpose, your vision, your passion, all of those things, and you say, yeah, I can go do those on my own. But you then choose to say, but I'm going to then find my place in the bigger story and in the bigger picture. Imagine if every human did that. Overnight, we would manifest a version of oneness that we've never seen before. And that I believe is the entire point of humanity, to be one as they are one, and that we would all be one together. And if we're going to be one, there has to be a universal mind, i.e. God the Father, that we're all connected to. And so it ultimately comes down to when you figure out who you are, well done. Now figure out why you're here. Okay, again, well done. If you know those two things, now submit that to a bigger purpose. And that is where you get all these stories where the Holy Spirit asks people to do these crazy things, the things that go against every cultural norm and every expectation, because the Father has a much bigger plan in place than you just having a nice house, right? Some pe- some of us in that plan, Jesus, you know, we don't know if he had a nice house or not. We do know that certain parts of certain members of this plan spent their time in tents and other people this plan became second in charge of the most powerful country in, in the in the world at the time with Joseph. Each part of each part must be done and each son of God as they walk into their identity and their purpose and we submit it to the Father again. Guys, you're talking about manifested sonship. You're talking about becoming everything Jesus was. And so if you want the how-tos to live like Jesus, to this point, this is one of the best ways I can unpack it. Sure, there's some skills. Sure, there's understandings behind this on how to heal. And and we'll do over time, you know, <laughs> however many years this goes on, you know, those things will be unpacked as well. But at the core of it, the principles are know who you are and know why you're here. So I hope this has blessed you guys. I have enjoyed this episode. And uh, I do really enjoy getting into the to pretty thick into the Bible at times. I, uh, I know this group is diverse and I've enjoyed the diversity of subjects. And uh, the Super Bowl is coming up. So we were going to do a our week, our monthly NAC community call uh, this Sunday night, but we are postponing it because the Super Bowl is akin. It's a national holiday at this point and nobody's going to be there. Um, if you would consider donating, uh, as always, appreciate your consideration between you and the Holy Spirit. And uh, remember, guys, if anything is true, there's a way in which it is true. And the truths that you have known for dozens of years, some of you many, many, many years, those truths can shift and change and be alive with the Holy Spirit and with life. They don't have to be suddenly become lies because you believe something different. Because if anything is true, there's a way in it is true, in which it is true. All right, guys. God bless you. See you in the next episode.